Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Five. I do think that that is the case, that they knew that this yeah. system had its shortcomings and they chose to stay quiet. Four. Most of the country, in my view, will think if the Tories change horses again, they're completely mad. Three. To not have a single source of truth and to disturb its fidelity in that way means that no convictions are safe. People want and need a right-wing party. We do not want this bunch of drips. One. We have Welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. There are periods in the often turbulent world of news and politics which mark a turning point, a sort of watershed moment. And here on Planet Normal, as we look down on planet Earth, it strikes me, co-pilot, that the UK political scene, and the Conservative Party in particular, has gone full tonto. Now, full tonto is a phrase which combines London geezer speak with Spanish, because we have some rather distinguished Spanish fans of Planet Normal. Oh, yes, we do. And in this context, Tonto doesn't refer to the trusty Native American psychic of the Lone Ranger. Hi-ho, Silver! Oh no, because Tonto, of course, is a Spanish word for silly, ridiculous or foolish. And as the Tory party tears itself to pieces over the Rwanda scheme and efforts to stop the small boats and illegal immigration, much of the rest of the country is looking on thinking, crikey, these guys are mad. As I speak, Alison, I have a copy of today, Wednesday's Daily Telegraph, in front of me, across the top of the masthead. On the front page is your grinning fizzog, <laughs> alongside the splashed headline, Even Electoral Wipeout is Wishful Thinking for a Party as Limp as This. <laughs> Say what you mean. Say what you mean. Planet Normal's been predicting the Tories crashing from 349 MPs now to less than 150, perhaps even to 100, at the next general election for some months now with you in particular, Alison, reading the runes among party activists and the good men and women of solid, respectable Middle Britain. We've got a lot to talk about, not least the Fujitsu post office scandal, and Planet Normal listeners will hear later in this episode from a genuine former insider at the Japanese conglomerate embroiled in the ghastly saga which has seen over 750 sub-postmasters and postmistresses wrongly prosecuted. It's been called the biggest miscarriage of justice in modern British history. But before that, the Tories. Alison is the Conservative Party, arguably the most consistent and successful political party in West European history, really about to break up? <laughs> well, I think the Conservative Party, I've just bought, you know how I rely on my post-it notes, which you always scorn because you've got such a massive brain that you just regurgitate great paragraphs. Well, as I'm here looking at my screen with the patchwork 
of tiny post-it notes. Such a girly swat. Girly, yeah, I, it t- trouble is, A, it's not girly swat now, it's pre-dementia middle-aged Imagine person. if we were in the same class at school. We would have killed each other. <laughs> I think we would have killed each other. We wouldn't, we wouldn't be. You'd have been borrowing my King Lear essay. But these new post-it notes from Boots are basically like the Conservative Party. You try to stick them on the screen and they just wilt and fall off. So I've got I've got almost nothing to say to you, Halligan. They're all falling off. Oh, no, that one, another one's gone now. I'll, I'll read, yes. So what but do the post... to say to Telegraph readers, your column is going gangbusters. Thousands of comments. Yeah. And we will put the link to it, the online version, in the show notes of this episode. Yeah, so, yes, the, uh, alas, alas, alack, the end of the Conservative Party, or maybe the beginning of a, of a new Conservative Party, on the post-it notes, which are still remaining stuck to the screen. So there's a lot going on, and, and dear Rishi, I think, probably best to leave the scene, possibly for about 40 or 50 years, because it's not just been an atrocious week for him, it it could even get worse. So he's got the squabbling back of the so-called One Nation Tories. And then we've got these rebels, haven't we, Liam? In fact, rebels led by some of our favourite people in the Conservative Party, Lord Frost, David Frost, Suella Braverman, Robert Jenrick, Miriam Cates, of course, who's been being richly sneered at on the Today programme by Michelle Hussein. How many people are turning off from the Today programme because of that sanctimonious woman sneering at them? Honestly, I mean, anyway. I had, I had lunch, as you do, with two pals from university the other day, and I won't mm. embarrass them by naming them, but they're both Big Planet Normal listeners. And they are solid centre-left centrist dads. One of them even lives in Islington, right? (laughs) And they both said to me, unprovoked, I can't listen to the Today programme anymore. Uh, It uh. just winds me up so much. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't good people working on the Today programme and the BBC in general, because there are. And they still do some amazing journalism. And I want the BBC to do well. But I think... The tone they set just so often winds people up. Well, I tell you, it was really interesting because I turned on and Miriam, of course, who I admire enormously. And you know the Tory party's in trouble when a down-to-earth northerner, very, very brilliant Cambridge-educated geneticist, by the way, Miriam Cates, is basically painted as some sort of far-right stormtrooper. I mean, she's the most delightful, commonsensical person you could meet. And Michelle Hussain was saying about the dread, the ghastly Rwanda bill. And Miriam just very quietly said, well, you'll find in this opinion poll, which we're going to talk about in a minute, that uh, the vast majority of constituents in the country, they just want people deported immediately. And no argument. So as we've always said, Liam, on Planet Normal, one reason indeed that the beloved Planet Normal was was founded was because this gap between the people we have to listen to on the TV and the radio and what the vast majority of people in the country are shouting at the telly is now a chasm. So just briefly, the Rwanda bill, I think talking to one of the one of the rebels a few seconds ago, looks like it's going to pass its third reading and go into the Lords. So the rebels are basically this group of Tory MPs who want the bill strengthened to make sure we don't go back into that crazy circus of individual appeals by illegal migrants. They basically want it. And another of the farcical elements of this week, it's been replete with farcical elements, is that 
Rishi Sunak to try and reassure the rebels came up with surely the maddest plan ever, which is recruiting 150 judges to to hear the appeals in double quick time. A representative of the judiciary said nothing of the sort would be happening. <laughs> Wish we and and anyway, as several people have pointed out, if Sunak thinks they're going to need 150 uh, judges revving on the grid, then that suggests they're anti- they're anticipating an awful lot of appeals against the Rwanda bill. So there's that going on, and then there's this bombshell opinion poll. But but why don't you tell us about that? The opinion poll, indeed, on front of the Telegraph earlier this week, really conveyed quite authoritatively, I thought, that across the country there really is clamour, whether people are Labour voters, Tory voters, Leavers, Remainers, living in the north, living in the south. There is a clamour now for the political media class, to get their arms around this problem. So if anyone argues that voters who want some kind of control on our borders are racist, then Britain is a deeply racist country, which of course it isn't. It certainly is Because not, no. successive global opinion polls, not least the excellent work by the Pew Global Institute over many years, whose output I read very closely and have a lot of respect for, they show that the UK's attitude to immigration is far more welcoming and far more liberal than pretty much any other country on earth. Only New Zealand and Canada have higher degrees of tolerance and welcome for immigration than the UK. We are far more liberal and welcoming than certainly France and Germany, but even than Sweden and Denmark and Holland, countries that so many people in the UK admire. The problem is the extent of it, the pace of it, and the way in which people are arriving illegally, which means that people who have come here over the years under the law, not least from India and and the Caribbean and so on, proud Brits who have adhered to the rules and done everything by the book and made a successful life here for themselves and their families, they're often the most outraged people about illegal migration, even though... Many people in our political and media class, particularly our broadcast media, get upset that they feel that way. So I do think the Tories have to get their arms around this problem. But we've talked about this before. I think you and I agree that the Rwanda scheme itself has become a bit of a strange hill to die on. It's taken on such a totemic importance and it seems it could only ever process a few hundred people a year anyway. Would that act as a deterrent? I'm not really sure that it would. For a lot of people, given the countries that they're coming from, spending time in Rwanda is to be preferred to spending time in the countries that they've left. Can't we have a planet normal trip to Rwanda? I think we could, you know, we could have a charabang and have, you know, sandwiches in Tupperware containers at the back. I mean, it's kind of logical. And we opened a bottle of cider. Didn't we have a wonderful time? <laughs> the day we went to Rwanda, exactly. <laughs> but what did you make of this? So this bombshell opinion poll, apparently commissioned by something called the Conservative Britain Alliance. No one can quite pin down what that is, but we know that Lord Frost, David Frost, a great friend of Planet Normal, um, was quite a mover and shaker in this. And this showed, no surprise, of course, to Planet Normal listeners, that Labour would in a, would have a, a basically a, a 1997 style landslide victory if the a general election were 
held today and the Tories would hold 169 seats, which you know, co-pilot, I think is wildly, wildly optimistic. So, optimistic. <laughs> so no, no matter how bad they think it is, it's going it's to be a, a loss of 190 seats from where we currently yeah, are. Yeah, but, but, but as I, as I it, said... It was, a very detailed, it was a very detailed poll, as I said, it was granular in that it was constituency by constituency. So individual MPs could get really properly spooked that they were going to lose. So do you their do you seats. think it was? Do you think the timing was definitely designed to stiffen the sinews about this about making toughening up the Rwanda bill? This is politics, and like high end journalism, as we've often said, it's a contact sport, right? So the poll was timed in order to have maximum impact on the parliamentary party. Having said that, even though you could call that cynical or tactical or strategic, I don't think that the contents of the poll were out of kilter with other opinion polls from a whole range of sources that we've seen in recent weeks and months. And particularly Downing Street's own private polling that I've been told about over recent weeks and months. The real variable is, can the Tory party get their arms around the small boats problem? And however distasteful, so many of our colleagues find that that is an issue which really is winding up now a lot of law-abiding, decent British people, many of them of immigrant stock themselves. And the other issue is, does reform really go for it? And does Nigel Farage lead the reform party into the general election and massively bang the drum, maybe even standing for a seat himself like Thanet? or Clacton. Clacton. The current leader of reform, Richard Tice, of course, is standing in Hartlepool. He stood there before. He's doing a lot of work there in order to try and win that seat. Ben Habib. Ben Habib, of course, in Wellingborough. I just think some of the analysis of this poll was presented as if it were reform's fault. And, you know, that the polls warning that 96 Conservative seats will be lost because reform plans to stand a candidate in every constituency and, and, and not stand aside, as, of course, the Brexit party did. But I just think that's a bloody cheek because the reason that this party is standing is because we don't have a right-wing party. So what we are seeing across the continent now, just before Christmas, we saw France pushing through a very, very draconian immigration bill, which in which new arrivals in the country will, will have to have worked for five years before they are eligible for housing benefits and that they will deport people and and so on and very and that bill has been brought about because Marine Le Pen is breathing down Macron's neck and we are seeing that with the alternative for, for Germany party we're seeing it in Scandinavia where Sweden has just really tightened the salaries for people immigrants migrants who are allowed to stay and so on so what we are lacking really and I said this in the column we people want and need a right-wing party we do not want this bunch of drips and whenever I hear oh Rishi's having to balance the right and the left of the Conservative Party the Conservative Party shouldn't have a left all right we've got a left we don't want a left within the Conservative Party because people want a right-wing option and personally even though reform is standing and they may pick up quite a few votes, that's not the problem for the Conservative Party. The problem for the Conservative Party is Conservatives, many thousands of people 
who are our readers and listeners, Telegraph subscribers, would rather be dragged over broken glass than go to the poll and put their cross next to the conservative box. So it's really not appropriate to be blaming reform. The only people the conservatives have to blame are the conservatives. I do think there is a silent majority of people in Britain who are broadly on on the centre-right. And I do think the Overton window has shifted in the sense that people who are on the centre-right, many people who own and run small businesses, the people who often work for them, many people in small-town Britain, outside the M25, in rural communities, they have been pilloried in recent years. And I think that's wrong. I also think, though, that reform are unlikely to win any seats under this first-past-the-post system that we have. And while that is in some ways regrettable, given that they've obviously built up a big head of steam, I wouldn't argue against first-past-the-post. And I have this conversation with Richard Tyson, Nigel Farage, Mano a Mano, often, in Mm. friendly terms. I see them regularly at GB News, and I've got to know both of them very, very well over recent months and and years and and very interesting to talk to they are too though quite often we disagree it strikes me that if we do do what reform wants and move to a proportional representation system that will be even more hopeless we'll have endless coalitions we'll have an inability to really do the smack of firm government because first past the post when used properly does lead to proper changes does lead to proper reforms and also and i hate to say this but it's true When you have proportional representation, you do end up with some really extremist parties holding or potentially holding the balance of power or at least having influence that's disproportionate in many ways to the influence that they have across the minds and hearts of people in the country as a whole. I do think, though, that reform are really going to be decisive in this election. Reform and what happens in Scotland and the economy will determine, I think, much of the general election, the context in which we go into the general election will be determined by this small boats issue and the state of the Conservative Party. And indeed, actually, whisper it, who is leading the Conservative Party? Because this is what's happening now. And you and I have been talking to lots of senior insiders about what is going to happen. And the reality is no one knows if there's going to be a vote of confidence next week, the week after, March, June, No one can say for sure that Rishi Sunak is going to be Tory leader at the time of the next election. And if he isn't, if there is another leadership election, and a lot of people are pushing for that inside the Conservative Party, whatever the merits of the new person, whatever he or she has to offer, and it will probably be a she if there is a change, most of the country, in my view, and I disagree with quite a lot of influential people and planet normal denizens on this, most of the country, in my view, will think if the Tories change horses again, they're completely mad. Well, they're completely mad. The, the choice is completely completely <laughs> mad or annihilated. That, that, that's one stage beyond full Tonto, <laughs> by the way. I like Tonto. <laughs> but what do they used to say? Kimasabi. Does that mean privileged white man? I mean, I, I can't I remember that. That's what he always used to say. <laughs> 
God, I wish I sat behind you in your primary school class. <laughs> <laughs> Pulling the pigtails. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, two two things, Liam. First of all, the thing I wrote about at length in the column today was this absolutely acrid disillusion with the Conservatives. And I'm, I'm sure you've heard this and you've read it on social media. That what, what people say the whole time is they'll say things like, oh, look, the highest immigration figures for 70 years – and under a Conservative government, 40,000 migrants arriving illegally on the South Coast, and under a Conservative government, all these different things, which traditionally the Conservatives could be relied upon. They were trusted, often to not do too much, but to be making the sort of sensible, commonsensical moves that most people agreed with. And that now, I think, that sense of trust, you can't rely on the Conservative Party to do what most people would think are Conservative things. But just coming back to your point about this leadership election. So so Sunak is obviously now very weak. And there are people we know are in discussions about the succession. Let's not beat about the bush about that. But even if the rebels were prepared to vote down the Rwanda bill, do the Kemi Badenox and the Suellas and the Robert Jenricks, do they want to inherit this pile of poo? Because essentially what they'd be there for would be to mitigate the disaster. It's not gonna be it's not gonna be a heroic stand, is it? It's gonna be it's gonna be it'll be Custer's last stand. It'll be, you know, all the Indians crying Tonto and coming in, coming in over the top of the fort. Tonto's so, the uh, name of one of the Native Americans. <laughs> I know. I know that. So the question now is, do any of the do any of the likely successors want to be prime minister at this real low tide in conservative fortunes? And I think that's we're going to we're going to be watching that in the next week or so aren't we because if he stays it's going to be terrible and if he goes it's going to be terrible I'm Helena Morrissey and I've worked in investments for over 3 decades I'm also the mother of 9 And now I'm working with Telegraph Money, your new and complete guide to being better off. Whether it's paying for your children's education or navigating the career ladder, I'm here to help you make the best decisions for you and your loved ones. You'll find valuable insights and expert opinion, plus a range of useful tools and calculators. Search Telegraph Money today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Public anger over the ITV drama Mr. Bates versus the Post Office has quite rightly kept that appalling miscarriage of justice on the front pages, with Fujitsu's Europe director telling the inquiry this week that, quotes, we did have bugs and errors in the system and we did help the Post Office in their prosecution of the sub-postmasters. We have an incredible guest for you on The Rocket this week. 
a former senior software architect at Fujitsu who was working on a replacement for the flawed Horizon system, has some truly shocking things to say about what went on at Fujitsu while hundreds of innocent postmasters were being wrongly accused of theft and fraud. We've decided to call our guest Robin. Their name and voice have been changed because they are well known in the industry. In a specially extended interview, I began by asking Robin, how could it be that postmasters like lovely Joe Hamilton could see the cash discrepancies on her screen doubling within seconds? So fundamentally, seeing, seeing that on TV really brought me back into what I understood how the counter behaved. And it was basically vulnerable to a loss in connection. And it was also vulnerable to software failures. The terminal could crash and you'd get a blue screen. And seeing that happen, we were aware that the terminal software itself also was not as uh, robust, I think was the word that was used mm, later in yes. the documentary, which, which had me then at that point thinking, hang on a second, what I know at the time to what I then heard subsequently years later, they didn't add up. So what you said to me before was that with the modem, everybody, listeners will remember the beep beep of the modem connection. If the connection was lost, the transaction could have been made. And then when the connection was re-established, the transaction or payment could be duplicated and taken again. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, it was certainly something that they considered a lot. Going back 20 years, I mean, this predates broadband. And you've got rural post offices that have got little more than a phone line. But there are rural parts of the country that still haven't really got viable broadband. So 20 years ago, the situation was you would use a modem, you'd dial up, you get the, that clicking noise. And the counters were designed for this eventuality in that they would hold the transactions in the event of no connection to the main service. And they were meant then to catch up, if you like, and, uh, and upload their transactions the the terminals themselves were basically PCs, computers of their time. Mm. So they, they didn't have the huge amounts of storage that you take for granted today. And they had a very limited capability. I think from memory, it was 35 days yeah. worth. And then that was split into trading periods. And the idea then is that you had to upload the data from that day or the absolute worst case if a phone line had gone wrong and needed repairing you had to upload data within a certain number of days and that process was designed in such a way that nothing would be lost but we worked with some of the people who were working on the new counter and they were telling us well that's just not the case they were quite eager to tell us that there were you know more modern solutions to this it was a, it was an obsolete platform i think even when it was yeah. implemented a lot of the people we were working with didn't really have many nice things to say about the counter. Now, so just we should can I just make it clear? You're, what you're calling the counter is the terminal or screen that people yes. will have seen in the drama. The, se the second explanation you offered to me about why Joe and the other postmasters might have been seeing these big shortfalls is that Fujitsu staff could intervene and log into the sub postmasters terminals try to rectify errors and make them worse. Yeah, I mean, that was something that we were not aware of. It was, it was something around the time 2004, 2005, Fujitsu were being asked to look at replacing the old platform. Yeah. And I was part of this big group of people that were trying to work that out. And I, and I think we didn't actually know that that could be done. And yet, one of the things to kind of bear in mind when you look to replace something this massive, 
is there's a word that we use called the end user, mm. okay? And it's not just the, the, the sort of postmasters and the, the people in the crown offices that you, that are the end users. You've actually got other end users. So you've got service and support staff. You're going to have post office employees that are going to want to look at the performance of mm. their business, performance of, of, of post offices. So there's a lot of end users that actually need to run and operate the system as well. But it was ca- it was categorically stated by the post office, specifically by Paul Levenel's, that there was nobody was accessing the private systems of the postmasters. And that wasn't true, was it? Well, no, it wasn't true. And I think listening to Paul Levenel's in that parliamentary committee saying nobody has access, that doesn't chime with how you build an operational mission-critical system because you have to have people that can go in and do things to keep it running. You you mentioned one sub-postmaster we saw in the ITV drama, Lee Castleton. What do you think happened in Lee's branch in Bridlington? I mean, the thing thing that got me, and this this was what piqued my interest, and, you know, I was watching along, and I, I, he said, well, he had a tilt roll in front of him and, and he was on the phone to the help desk. Mm. And he said, this can't be me because it's a different terminal. And I, I just literally, I, I, my mouth was open. I actually pressed pause on that. Mm. And I said, that doesn't make any sense. If that wasn't him, then who was it? Yeah. So just to be clear, Lee Castleton had two what you call counters or terminals in his branch. I mean, I, I mean, that was the conclusion I drew. So Fujitsu staff um, could have been tapping into the second terminal that Lee Castleton wasn't using. And this, this, this is what fired my interest. Mm. You know, I mean, this is when I thought, you know what, tomorrow I'm going to go and start looking at the inquiry website, and I'm going to go through my recollection of being 20 years old. It was no more than intuition or gut feel. This, this isn't right. Their lawyer, the post office lawyer, said, and I quote, the post office wanted to make an example of Lee Castleton to prove that Horizon was robust. Lee was uh, bankrupted by having to pick up the 320,000 costs of the legal case the post office brought against him. Were there ever any grounds for claiming that Horizon was robust? Yes Yes or no? Tell me. No, there's no grounds. I can tell you categorically why. So I, I started to look into the evidence that had been pulled together for the inquiry, and there, there is a particular document. But basically what that document does is it states the different lines of support. Now, these are the end users I was referring to yeah. earlier. You have typically have four lines. That's standard. There are international standards on this kind of thing called ITIL. And, and so I thought, right, okay, they've got four lines of support. Well, so far, so good. And you go down the first line, the second line, you get to the third line in this document. And it basically says that the third line support of Fujitsu has unlimited access right. to the system and the ability to change data. Can I ask you what the date of that document was? 2002. Right. So very early on. Very, very early on. So, I mean, it was a system conceived, I think, in 1999. And it was completed, I think, in 2002. And I looked at that document and I've gone on to work for other companies that provide mission-critical systems and run mission-critical systems. And I saw that section of the third-line support where they're able to change any data Mm. and they are concerned that they can do it without any sufficient audit trail. 
and they can do that in a way where they say there's the potential for these people to commit acts of fraud, then I started to realize, right, okay, if you can change the data in a way that is undetectable, yeah. and I was so alarmed at this point, I then started to dig in and Richard Roll's evidence, not just the Panorama documentary from 2015, but then into the actual inquiry itself, I listened very intently, and he categorically said that they could go in and change postmaster data and make it look as if the postmaster had done it. Robin, you joined Fujitsu in 2004 from a, a very state-of-the-art R&D job. What was your first impression of the setup at Fujitsu in terms of how up-to-date the, the, the Horizon system was? I, in, term, in, terms of my, in terms of my first impressions of Fujitsu, my first day there, and I sort of said, okay, so how does the place work? And I was absolutely struck by it was an obsolete setup. It was arcane. It was almost Victorian in terms of its wow. approaches. Everything was written down into 100-page documents. And people are busy. They don't have time to read a 100-page document. If you want to know how something works, you literally you would say, I'll just go and get that document for you. And, and it would arrive and it'd be 250 pages long, written, mm. written in words with very few pictures. So what you're saying is that it was extremely slow-moving. Slow-moving, very and and not up to the minute in terms of the technology. Now, you no. said to me, you had a lovely phrase my mum used to use, of the post office and Fujitsu, post office as a client, champagne tastes on beer money. Yes. Was there budget which would have meant that Fujitsu wouldn't perhaps have built in all the safeguards that you would have on one of the mission-critical type projects yeah, yeah. you describe. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that that is the case. So you get to start building it, which is where you spend the lion's share of your money, okay? You've got a pool of money, you, you've got your requirements, you've done your design, you've got all your documentation, thousands and thousands of pages of it. You then get the developers to develop it. Now, what happens is you're running out of time. You say it's going to take 18 months, you get into doing the coding and you're 14 months in and you're not finished on the coding yet and you've still got to test it. Well, what happens is the money is running out, the coders aren't quite finished, the tests are starting to get a bit itchy, post office is starting to get a bit itchy, and then you've got two and a half months left. And bearing in mind, you've got to train up the, the postmasters, you've got to do a whole load of things on post office, they've got to sign it all off. Yeah. So the testing gets squeezed. You're running out of money, you're running out of time, and you, you, you need to hit the deadline or else because there's contractual penalties, I think, if I remember right. And so the testing is the one thing that tends to fall by the wayside. So not, not only have you lumped in a whole load of risk, okay, you're then asking a bunch of people who are doing the testing to test it quickly. Something is going to get missed. You had a very vivid image you gave me. You talked about fixing the faults in Horizon. You said it was like trying to mend the wings of a plane when it was in flight. Absolutely. Robin, was there an element of sticking plasters being applied by Fujitsu to make the plane fly when it may not have been really ready? Well, yeah, there's one example. There was some of the guys I was working with, they got called in to look at an issue. And this was Christmas. Yeah. So Christmas is a very busy trading period for everybody. Post office is no exception. And, and it was almost like a perfect storm from how I remember it. These guys were like having to look at an issue that was looming I think that year, pension day fell on Christmas Eve. Yeah, so very and busy. They just they they just put a whole new load of software in, okay, which had been rushed through because of the reasons I explained to you. 
and this software wasn't meeting its contractual performance mm. and it wouldn't meet the peak performance that tends to happen over Christmas. Everybody was getting very nervous that the actual system was going to fall over. They were trying almost war game situations. If we did this, would this happen? Nobody really had confidence. It's like throwing a snowball off a, off a hill. It's gathering size and speed and pace. And if you get in the way, it's going to knock you over. But it was a snowball. Just so Planet Normal listeners can see what, what's going on. Huge pressure on the Horizon system, which was never intended to be a full accounting system, was no, it? No, it was never intended to be a branch trading system. So selling things from fishing licenses through to travel insurance to doing bureau de change. It was never intended to be that. It was actually intended to be a welfare payment system. And you would replace the paper pension books and the, and the benefit books and you'd get a card. And it was designed to distribute those funds. So we've got this software that was not designed for the purpose of, of thousands of postmasters using it, doing millions of transactions. You've got a, a peak busy period like Christmas. Yeah. And one option you said to me was to relieve the pressure on the system, you could switch off the no data loss policy. Yeah. If you turn, if they switched off the no data loss policy, although that would make the system work faster, that would be risky because yes. basically you would be losing a trail of the transactions, wouldn't you? Yeah. If you consider the fact that the, the, the terminals, the counters themselves were prone to maybe a blue screen or that the phone line might pack up and then suddenly you've got it capturing the transactions in the actual central part of the system and, and they'd switch the no data loss off there. That was something that I don't think they, they, they were reluctant to countenance, but it was an option being given to them to consider. And nobody could put their hand on their heart and say, it won't lose any data, it won't time out, because they were dealing with a performance issue where it wasn't working fast enough with a, with a load of software in it that really hadn't been tested adequately, not, not for a mission-critical system. I'm going to say to you now a phrase you said to me that almost made my heart stop. Every single conviction was unsafe. Yes, they are. Yeah, I mean, even, even under the old legacy horizon and even under the new one, as I watched the inquiry, you've got people basically not being able to guarantee that the system is safe. Okay, and you've got to the point where a high court judge has ruled the system isn't safe. Mm. Okay, so it's, it's irrelevant what the likes of the people at Fujitsu say. They've had countless audits. They've got high court judge ruling saying the system isn't safe. And that was legacy horizon. I left the account sometime where basically the replacement horizon was put on hiatus. You mentioned champagne takes beer money. Mm. There was this kind of, oh, hang on, this is... A substantial undertaking. We need to have a, a rethink. I moved off the account around that time. Too much money to fix. Let's it. leave it as a, a, on a wing and a prayer. Yeah, pretty much. And it wasn't as if every time they put changes in, that they didn't actually then create more defects. And and then even when they did replace it, they created more defects. Yeah. And and they created defects in areas where nobody that that handles money would ever countenance a defect in terms of adding it up or handling it or moving it. There were defects there. I mean, banks come in for a lot of stick, but the one thing they don't get wrong, and they don't get wrong very often, shall we say, is they don't make mistakes when it comes to dealing with money. And their technology is geared for that. And if they do have an issue, they address it very quickly. They don't sit on it and pretend it didn't happen. 
Robin, how would you describe the atmosphere and culture on the Horizon team at Fujitsu? You actually talked to me about a toxic atmosphere and I was very struck by the fact that you used the word Chernobyl in terms yes. of people. Was challenging the view that everything was fine difficult? Yes, it was. It was because once you've been working on something for so long, you accept it warts and all. Okay, and you know that there are things to look out for. There are things it does very well. And and, and I think my overall impression, to summarize, the, the, the feelings that I've carried with me for 20 years was it was just absolute hubris. Right. You know, the, these guys were working to an arcane set of practices, working on arcane technology, and they were perfectly happy with that. Whereas, quite clearly, we heard from the counter team, you know, the, building a new version of the counter, the, the terminal, as you call it. They were telling us this thing's had its day already. They get countless support calls. There's a lot of dissatisfaction with the way it, it behaves. They don't get enough information about the performance of their business. And even they were kind of hamstrung because, you know, they were trying to build something new and having the same level of resistance from the people that ran the existing counter. Hubris is a very... A very interesting choice of word. Were there people where there would be denial of any problems? We, we know that Computer Weekly was starting to run articles about arrests and things going wrong in the post office. I suppose what I want to know is why did no one at Fujitsu say, hang on a minute, we were hearing about all these arrests and convictions based on the accounts. Did no one say something going wrong with the system was there any potential admission that this was a problem with the software i, I can draw on one example if you, if you go back to the christmas example apparently they, they isolated the problem and it was it was fujitsu's fault mm. okay somebody somewhere had made a mistake and i, I sort of raised my eyebrows and said, that's a pretty major mistake and i said well, what's going to be the consequence of that nothing and we'll write a report to post office and whoever's going to go and have a conversation with them and we won't say anything about what the actual problem was. We'll try and skirt around it. And, and that, that, for me, when it comes to finding fault, this is a system where money is moving and now we know the human cost of mistakes that were made. And, and there was this kind of blithe attitude that they weren't running a mission-critical system. And for me... There were pockets of people that understood the seriousness of what they were doing, but it was more a case of, we're not going to take any risks, and therefore we'll be fine. Well, that's not how you do it. You accept all the risks, and you then you make sure they don't happen. And it was really a case of, they had their head in the sand, and it was very difficult to raise issues to leadership, to say, I'm not happy about this. I found this in the existing system. Can someone please tell me what happens if this happens? It was very difficult. So a culture of, of fear of management. Can we just turn to the prosecution of sub-postmasters? Up to a 1,000 innocent men and women, some 240 of them ending up in jail, losing everything. You say the lawyers were on a budget, so many of the alleged fraud yes. cases were not investigated with actual data. Robin... Were sub-postmasters convicted when there was no accurate data of their transactions available? They, they were convicted on the basis of faulty data. Okay. Because there is one thing with a mission-critical system you have to have. Okay, First of all, it has to work, and it has to remain working, and it has to be there all the time, and you have to double up on everything that you have, triple up on everything that you have. But the one thing you have to have as well is if it does go wrong, you need to find out how it went wrong and where it went wrong, and you have to fix it very mm. quickly. And then everything that it produces has to be produced to a degree of truth and fidelity 
as well because you have to put your faith in this thing. Mission critical systems, that they're called mission critical because basically people can die if you get it wrong. Right. The most extreme case, right? And in this example, very, very sadly, that is the case. Mm. So you have to have these things. And, and one of the things when it comes to the data in the system is you have to have this thing called a single source of truth. Yeah. And, and then when you look at how the auditing is done, in the last couple of days of the, the, the inquiry hearing, you've got technical people admitting that they're having to clean this data up. Mm. And yet that's meant to be your single source of truth there for, for people to look at in terms of what went wrong to fix it. More importantly, if there are bad people, and there are, yeah. okay, in, in the human nature says so, but to, to not have a single source of truth and, and to disturb its fidelity in that way means that no, no convictions are safe. Not even the, not, you know, in the very small example of people that did actually commit fraud, because that is an actual fact of life, even their convictions aren't safe because they've tampered with this source of truth and they've allowed people to go in and tamper it and do that on behalf of someone else. There's no fidelity in it. You say with your very, very vast and distinguished experience in this field, impersonating sub-postmasters to change branch data is desperation stakes. I would never, yes. ever tolerate going into private accounts. But senior management working on the original Horizon system must absolutely have known that was going on. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's no way around it because if you draft up a document like that and you say, we need to do it this way, and then you need to go and get funding to do it. That funding doesn't come out of thin air. That has to come from post office or Fujitsu has funding it's willing to put in its own platform as well. There's also that dimension. But the people that hold that funding will not let it go unless they know the reason why. Because it's a finite resource. Money doesn't grow on trees. And that money could be earmarked for doing something else. So you're going to have that conversation. Now, the people that typically hold funds in that kind of business are accountable and responsible to the performance and success of the account. And, and no doubt they've got a superior that's also got an A number of accounts. And then you're into almost like the regional management of Fujitsu Corporation. Okay, so you're working at the highest levels of, of the business here. They would have to know. So when Paula Venels, former CEO of the post office, kept insisting publicly that Horizon was as secure as Fort Knox, was she, in your marvellous phrase, either an idiot or she was lied to? Which, which, or both? What do, you, what do you think? I Yeah, both. Honestly, CEOs can't be everywhere all the time, okay? And they, they delegate their authority to their, to their board and they have people in that role that I like to think have got to the top by merit and they are the ones that discharge what the CEO wants to do and the idea that she sends an email out to her staff to find out a question that she then says I want the answer yes is, yeah. is just beggar's belief yeah. I mean that that's just yeah. absolutely barking mad and there's nothing stopping her if it was such a critical issue from getting out of her office and walking the floor my career started in the late 1980s, okay? And I can give you the measure of any good CEO. From then to now, they walk the floor. They know their staff. They literally ignore their first line, go out and, and talk to the post boy. How are you doing? And, and that is something that any good CEO can is more than capable of doing, okay? She could have walked out of her office, got in her car, gone to Fujitsu and gone and had a conversation with the account and said, right, I want to know exactly what's going on. She's perfectly empowered to do that. 
okay? And if it was that serious an issue, then she should have absolutely done that, okay? You don't have to go through your management team. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put you on the spot now because you okay. talked to me about when you arrived and you were going around talking to different people, different areas, and sure. you said that there was some reluctance, even secrecy, about telling you about certain elements of the original Horizon. Robin, sure. do you think there was a conspiracy at Fujitsu to conceal faults which ultimately led to this historic miscarriage of justice? I mean, if I if I think back to my first few weeks, maybe first few months there, I think once the honeymoon period wore off, which was pretty quickly, I do remember a conversation in passing and I was kind of on the periphery of where they came back and said, oh, we've just had the independent fraud review. I don't know which one it was. I wish I did. And they said, oh, 96% of all fraud is committed by postmasters. And having gone around the houses and talking to people, because I had this like roaming brief to find out about how Legacy Horizon worked, what, what struck me was 96%. First of all, who's the other 4%? And, and, and more worryingly, how can they be so sure? Okay. And I sort of asked you know, my boss at the time, I said, that's an impressive number. And he said, yeah. And I said, well, to be honest with you, we haven't quite started that area yet. I think maybe we should make a start while people have got it fresh in there. And so we did start to make some inquiries about, okay, well, how do we safeguard the post office's money? How do we, you know, it was very much from the post office perspective, much to my kind of eternal shame now, really. But I guess I had no idea what was going to happen. But we started looking around. And I think what struck me was when we started to talk to the security teams. And when it comes to securing vast sums of money, so one, one fact that I don't think has been shared is post office was Europe's largest retail system. Wow. Okay. And it was also the largest, you can't call them a bank, but they moved something like, I don't know, it was almost like a 20% of the country's gross national product in welfare and benefits and pension payments. I mean, they were moving hundreds of billions of pounds. Let's just pause now. Let's just allow this terrible thought to sink in. This system, which was inadequate, which had not been designed for those purposes, was processing hundreds of billions of pounds of public money in a system which could fall down at busy times. That's correct. That's correct, isn't it? That's a really reasonable comment. Reasonable comment. I'm not making a reasonable comment. I'm sh- I'm shouting, Robin. It's it's bloody awful. <sighs> Are there people you worked with who should be in jail? Gosh, I think you touched upon the conspiracy question earlier, and I do think that that is the case. That they knew that this system had its shortcomings, and they chose to stay quiet. Now, as far as I'm concerned, in, in light of what's happened, and Computer Weekly was a bible in those days we read the first reports from computer weekly and, and this is the reports about the sub postmasters these were the first reports and the first kind of clues and private eye as well and it was raising questions and it was a somewhat muted response and it was almost like a case of well they would say that one day and my view is i do think that there is a group of people in fujitsu on that account that have been there a long time that know about this stuff I do not believe for one second that nobody in the third line support did not share what they were doing because they were fixing problems with the system. Those problems have a trail. Right. So basically, the people who were dipping in and out of the allegedly, supposedly private postmasters accounts, there is no way their senior managers would not have known what they were doing. 
there is there is no way because they're fixing issues and they are logged and they are discussed and they go on to defect queues and they, they have this known error log, this thing called the cal. You know, there's no way on earth that nobody, because you see what happens is to fix it costs money and the people that hold money are senior people. And they would then have to ask the question, why do you want all this money to fix this thing for? You can't then just look them in the eye and say, oh, you don't need to know. Because these have these people have the, the power to hire and fire staff. You, it just it, it just, just does not fit with the corporate world. Okay, that is not how the corporate world works. We have this week seen Paul Patterson, Fujitsu's Europe director. Yes. Uh, he told the inquiry on Tuesday that we did have bugs and errors in the system, and we did help the post office in their prosecution of the sub-postmasters, and for that we are truly sorry. Some people might say that sorry is a very small word. Too little, too late. Too little, too late, yes, indeed. And as you said to me, guilty until proven innocent was the modus operandi here. Robin, I know you've thought about these matters very deeply. You, You told me when you agreed to do this interview, I want to be able to look my partner and kids in the eye and say I did my bit. What do you think? You have effectively told Planet Normal that you do believe there was a conspiracy at the highest levels in Fujitsu to suppress the news that the Horizon system was deeply flawed and and probably indeed leading in many cases to those errors for which postmasters were jailed. What do you think should happen now in terms of prosecutions and compensation by Fujitsu? And let us not forget the grotesque mismanagement within the post office. I mean, I mean, the first thing is, first of all, with convictions being quashed, then the, the, the actual accusation of fraud, the, the shoe goes onto a different foot because the post office has taken postmaster's money fraudulently, okay, because it, it, immediately give it back. That should be incontrovertible. You've taken that money with false prosecution, give the money back. That's the first thing. Second thing is, yeah, I do believe that, I think one of the things I like to think is that this is a serious fraud or a serious crime. You therefore send the appropriate delegation of senior police people to go and take a look. And I've heard there's been issues with disclosure. Well, in the old days, in the days when something like the Department of Trade and Industry actually had teeth, they'd go in and raid an office and walk out with boxes and boxes of fire. So they should be raiding Fujitsu's offices in Bracknell. And you said to me there are two major databases, one in Bootle and one in Hertfordshire. Is that correct? Yeah, they they do keep their records, and I do think that there should be court orders now to look at this in terms of a criminal investigation. I mean, I'm reading that that is the next stage. Well, I'm sorry, this has gone on for 25 years. I do think there's been a conspiracy to suppress the truth on both sides of the equation. I think Fujitsu's lied to post office. I think post office has lied to Fujitsu. Nobody comes out of this very well. It's like an abusive relationship. It's a very abusive relationship, and I do think that you bring, for a matter like this, of such seriousness and such a miscarriage of justice, you bring the full weight of the law to bear on these people. And there's a very, very simple reason for that, is that if you're going to be accountable for running something so important, there are consequences when you don't do it right. And and people have died. Mission-critical systems are that because there is there's a risk to life or there's a risk to substantial financial loss. And in this example, that is exactly what's happened. You have to have that sanction. You just can't get away with it. Constant stories, really, of people failing upwards. In, it's clearly happened in, in post office to the point where they're now saying they're sorry 25 years later. It, it, for me, you have to have that. You, it's effective corporate governance. 
in that if you are responsible, you take that kind of money, you have to be held accountable. And, and what we've seen here is, didn't happen on my watch, therefore it's nothing to do with me. That's not good enough. Robin, not your real name, not your real voice. have to say it has been an absolute privilege to talk to you. This is... Likewise. We know such a heartbreaking major story. We're incredibly grateful, the whole team on Planet Normal, for your help in beginning to explain so we can understand what really happened. Thank you so much from the bottom of my heart. Thank you. Thank you. You're very welcome. Thanks, Alison. Blimey, co-pilot, that was a bombshell of an interview, which I'm sure will trouble the scorers across Fleet Street, if you like. A lot of news was made in there, a proper Fujitsu insider, Robin, of course. We're not identifying Robin to talk about what was actually going on within the software team with such authority, genuinely path-breaking interview, Alison. You know, Liam, I've been feeling the responsibility of it the last couple of days. The minute Robin reached out, Planet Normal listener, of course, one of our great Planet Normal listeners, what a resource you guys are to us. And these very vivid accounts from Robin about things that had happened, obviously conscience troubling them, and obviously seeing all their former colleagues, very senior colleagues coming into the spotlight. And I just wanted to get them to say to say what had happened and, of course, things that you've picked out. But the thing that leapt out at me, I think lots of people will have watched the ITV drama, Mr Bates, and seen that terrible scene where lovely Joe Hamilton is staring absolutely horrified at the screen with the discrepancies multiple, doubling in front of her. And when Robin said to me that when the modem, when, when the system dropped, the previous transaction money could be held in an account. And then when it came back up again, far from carrying on, the, the transaction could be duplicated. And that was a kind of light bulb moment for me because we've been wondering, haven't we? We've been wondering how on earth these stupendous sums could have accumulated. But to have that factual analysis from such a brilliant person like Robin and knowing that everything that was going on, all those hundreds and hundreds of documents, was underpinning just a really a vast human tragedy. We've been hearing, of course, from various Fujitsu denizens at the uh, Business Select Committee in the House of Commons. You mentioned Paul Patterson, the European boss of Fujitsu, also in Davos, that mountainous gabfest in Switzerland, various Fujitsu execs, most significantly, the global CEO have had mics stuffed in their faces, rightly so, and have acknowledged liability and sorrow. You know, Fujitsu earned about £2.5 billion from this contract, which is still running, of course, a quarter-of-century contract. But the bill for compensation, which will now be paid by the government and the taxpayer-owned post office, is earmarked to be £1 billion. Fujitsu have indicated that they will pay some compensation. And the number that's been mooted, floated, is £10 million. So £10 million, <laughs> right? Small change, Halligan, small change. From which you've earned £2.4 billion, And a billion, of course, is a thousand million. That £10 million, if you consider that there were over 750 
sub-postmasters and sub-postmistresses prosecuted on evidence, which we've just heard from a bona fide insider that was non-existent, that's about 12 or 13 grand each. (laughs) That's going to buy you a very, very low-end car. (laughs) It's completely preposterous. As if they're going to get away with 10 million quid. What an insult. Yeah, a terrible insult. I mean, you know, you're, you've got a lot of insight into this kind of corporate stuff. But for me, again, what stood out from Robin's recollections is that the data, such as it was, I mean, the, the terminals in the post office only carried 35 days of data. When Robin went in there in 2004, the technology was already obsolete. They called it prehistoric, okay? This was terrible software that had been intended for something else and was repurposed for this huge, huge task, which it was clearly incapable of carrying out. And so even auditors couldn't possibly figure out what had gone wrong with the transaction. So for me, when Robin said, you know, none of the convictions could be safe. How how could they be? The evidence had just huge holes in it. I mean, did you feel shocked listening to them? I felt deeply shocked. I felt deeply shocked. And I also feel shocked that Fujitsu have offered up less than half of 1% of their earnings <laughs> on a contract in compensation, a contract which has sparked what is being called rightly under many headings, the biggest miscarriage of justice in British history. I mean, who are these people? Does nobody advise them? Does nobody from sort of strategy and communications advise them? As if £10 million is going to be enough. They're completely out to lunch. And I, you and I have talked a lot about this over recent days. And I very much felt the huge weight of responsibility on your shoulders. And I must say here... And now that Telegraph colleagues have supported you, haven't they? They have. Yet yeah. rallying around you, mm-hmm. our, our audio team, editing, producing a very complex interview, our legal team. We sit here and we chat on this podcast and we natter away. And I make fun of you that you don't know the name of Tonto's horse and you still don't. <laughs> and you make fun of me. And yet every now and then, I think we show, don't we, that while this is a very discursive podcast and a chatty podcast, we are at heart journalists. And had the tyres of this story not been kicked over many, many years by journalists, not least Computer Weekly, Private Eye, the BBC got added to them with their panorama, other documentaries, books that have been written on this. There was a lot of really good journalism around this, but it never really properly made it out of the business pages because it's a complex story. And then it took a drama documentary, if you like, a a popular primetime ITV drama. And I know a fair amount about primetime television, Alison, and trying to get complex issues aired on primetime television. And it's not easy. So, again, I repeat, and I'm sure you will endorse this chapeau to the commissioning editors at ITV, our most kind of, if you like, popular channel. ITV was the place, you know, where I used to watch those incredible world in action 
documentaries yeah, absolutely. made yeah. by Granada. I get emotional just thinking about them because mm. they were so incredible. That uh, theme tune when it started oh, was that was organ a, sort of theme tune, and, and, and the man in the sort of Jesus with his arms and legs yeah. akimbo in a circle. Yeah, absolutely amazing. You'd sit down and watch that, and you knew something was going to happen in your head that was going quali- to quality, Liam. Quality. It was going to be mind blowing, and that is public service television. And I absolutely implore senior television ex- executives with whom I have had many clashes over many years because too many of them think that the punters are thick and they don't want complex, important issues. A primetime ITV documentary has garnered that channel more publicity than it has had in a month of Sundays and deservedly so. And it is rated like a steam train. Absolutely brilliant. We need more of this kind of journalism, particularly from our broadcasters. Well done, ITV. Let's not forget, Liam, something I really want to say. Fujitsu on the one hand, but we cannot forget that the post office was cheap. They paid for uh, a system. They, they opted for a system. They would only have a certain budget and they did not have a, a system which had the necessary safeguards to guarantee that the data was protected and we heard from Robin how Robin who has worked on nuclear sites air traffic control mission critical projects where you absolutely have to have the data pure the truth he said there's got to be a truth stream there was no truth stream in horizon there's no way that the postmasters could access the data just disappeared from their terminals there was no way they could have access to data, which would prove that it was inadequate, it was corrupted, it was subtracted from, it was duplicated, it was rubbish. Their lives, hundreds and hundreds of lives, not just the lives of the postmasters and the postmistresses, but their families, their neighbours, people being spat at in the street, children being bullied, everything, horrible, horrible repercussions going on and on because the post office wouldn't pay, which, as we know, rewarded itself, rewarded its senior officials, rewarded themselves with phenomenal bonuses, but not adequate money. And when Robin said that they had basically left Horizon because they felt they were being thwarted in their attempt to replace Horizon with a better system, and there were people there who had a vested interest in the original legacy horizon not being probed too closely and that horizon system was put on hiatus and as you say Liam they just not long ago end of last year had their vast contract renewed the software or the now now fixed software which has caused just untold human suffering but i i look I hope that Robin has given people more pieces of the jigsaw and we hope we see, don't we, not £10 million <laughs> compensation. And I at mean, least one zero, mate, possibly yeah, two. I think two, don't you? I think we're talking over a billion. Now on to our listener emails. Your messages sent to planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Please keep them coming. We love to hear your thoughts. We learn so much from you, the citizens of Planet Normal, not least from Robin. 
Marcus says, dear co-pilots, happy new year, but what a depressing start. Thank you both for expressing outrage over the appalling treatment of decent people at the hands of the post office management and their goons. I have just met Seema Misra and her husband Davinda and heard their story of how they put their savings into opening a post office with three counters, only to be told that £40 was missing on the first day, and this with a post office trainer at Seema's side. From there, it spiralled downwards into Seema being threatened with the loss of her business or plead guilty to false accounting. She later ended up in prison 10 weeks into her pregnancy. She and her husband became pariahs in their town. While I was filming them, Marcus is a, is a television cameraman, three times strangers approached to ask them, are you so-and-so? They professed their support and they apologised for not believing them during their ordeal. Each time the couple were gracious. Hearing their horror story, I was surprised at how generous of spirit and good-natured they remain, considering how scarred their lives now are. God bless them. Please keep up the good work, says Marcus. And he also says, P.S., where is all the money paid in over the years by the sub-postmasters across the land trying to balance out their tills? On that, the silence from Fujitsu and the post office is deafening. P.P.S., this is really interesting, Liam. A current postmaster explained the business model to me. They earn only a commission on transactions. This commission has now been cut, he said, to help pay for the proceedings against the post office, just when you thought they couldn't sink any lower. This is from Steve from Plymouth. Hi, both. Thanks for all you do. It's really appreciated. I wanted to comment on the campaign you mentioned to have Alan Bates on with the CBE or knighthood. Alan Bates, of course, being the sub-postmaster who really masterminded the fight back and whose role was immortalised, I use that word deliberately, in the ITV documentary, Mr Bates versus the Post Office. Well, in my humble opinion, says Steve, this is not the right way to reward him a knighthood. Alan's clearly a champion for the common man and has a drive to ensure justice is equally applied to me. He is exactly the type of person we need representing us in the House of Lords. A life peerage is therefore what I believe he should be issued. Lord Bates of Fenny Compton. Thanks to you both, Steve. Now, just remind listeners, Liam, that Fenny Compton was the small community. Alan, when he he was trying to find a place for all these poor postmasters to meet, he basically put a drawing pin in, in the, the middle of the country. Fenny Compton. And I think Lord Bates of Fenny Compton would be an absolute triumph. I really do. That's such a wonderful idea, a victory for this extra, extraordinary, ordinary man. Fantastic. Peter says, it is now evident that government electronic systems procurement is effectively single sourced and supplied from outside this country. No organisation worthy of the name would ever allow itself to be trapped in this way. At the very least, there need to be two suppliers of these services and preferably three. The procurement system as it stands positively reeks of ineptitude. Fujitsu needs to be downgraded to a lesser priority and barred from bidding on any major projects unless and until it puts at least £1 billion on the table for the sub-postmasters without conditions. I did write to my MP suggesting that Alan Bates and his associates be asked to oversee the apportioning of all payments to those affected. His suggestions should then be adopted by government. No more incompetent civil service or ministers to bugger up the process. Great suggestion, Peter. And let's end on a light note before we hear the latest about your Turkish cat, Alison. <laughs> 
can't wait. I can't <laughs> wait. Because Bob the Bard has struck again, the multiple planet normal mug winner, our resident poet. And here he is. Following last week's discussion about the post office, Bob writes, I'm afraid I was inspired to write another poem about the cronyism that's played such a large part in the Horizon Fujitsu post office scandal. Thanks again for Planet Normal. Unlike those in charge of the post office, you are always first class. I think he's vying for another mug. No, battery, well done. (laughs) So here it is, the gravy train. Welcome to the gravy train of Britain's gilded few. Now pick an institution and we'll find a role for you. Your job is to protect the brand and blindly toe the line. And I'll be there to scratch your back so long as you scratch mine. (laughs) Don't worry if you mess things up. We'll cover up your wrongs, reward you with promotion and shower you with gongs. A rosy future's guaranteed. You'll rake in more and more forever falling upwards. With juicy jobs galore. That is that that might even be his best. Absolutely brilliant. So much truth and humour in four verses. <laughs> that should be read out, Bob, at the inquiry into the horizon scandal. I mean it's pretty it's pretty much four stanzas of accurate description that Robin gave us. It's um... I tell you, there's more truth in that than I've heard from a lot of those executives in front of the business select committee. And on that bombshell. That's it from Planet Normal. What an addition we've brought you this week. And as we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reason, views, email of the week, it's my turn. It's Steve from Plymouth for making the excellent suggestion that we should have Lord Bates of Fenny Compton in the House of Lords. So, Steve, send in your postal address to us in an email, plannormaltelegraph.co.uk, put in the subject heading, mug winner. Truly inspired, Steve, and I think that Robin deserves a planet normal mug as well actually if you enjoy planet normal we jolly well help you do this week because we've bust a gut bust several guts haven't we halligan please do leave a rating and a review on apple Podcasts or spotify it helps others to find the podcast and it don't half cheer up the co-pilot and me i'm talking about cheering up so tell us about the cat because you went to turkey as you often do oh, over the summer start. and you fell in love with a stray cat who was <laughs> purring around your sun-kissed <laughs> ankles as you were eating your delicious Turkish fish supper. Mm. And somehow the cat is now bound for Pearson Towers. There's there's a limited amount of mirth we can extract from this vast financial <laughs> disaster, I think. I think I, I think I think Pearson Towers, I think himself maybe soon be leaving on the grounds of uh, Mad expense spent on pussycat. I just want to reassure listeners who got the uh, who got the impression last week that Didi was coming on a private plane. She is actually coming on a normal flight, and all, a business, very much a business class seat, though. <laughs> all I can say is that if if Fujitsu could chip in, because we really are. Oh dear. Anyway, she's... have you considered, Alison, that whichever agency you're using or whatever it is concierge service to transport this no. cat back from Turkey at enormous expense. I don't know the number. No, the, no, Liam, the, you, no, you, the money is going, the money is going to the Animal Protection Society in the small Turkish coastal town where I holiday. Is that what they told you? <laughs> <laughs> and you believe them. <laughs> Look, what's happening is you saw a cat in Turkey, <laughs> right, and they've taken a lot of money off you. 
and someone's going to go down to some cat's home <laughs> in South London, get a cat that looks roughly the same for free, and then courier it to Pearson Towers. You are. And you're not going to have the heart to say, that's not Diddy. And they'll say, yes, it is. He's grown. <laughs> it's been six months. <laughs> Do you really think it's the same cat? I don't. I don't know why you're laughing. This is a, this is a, this is an act of international cat humanitarianism, right? And as we speed away from our beloved planet normal and the madness of planet Earth, comes back into view. Thanks as ever to our producers Isabel, uh, Isabel Bouchard, Elliot Lampett, Casho, and Louisa Wells, who've all done absolutely extra sterling work this week. They have. St- Stay safe and in touch with us and with each other until next week. It's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 